0: Good morning, how we doing? We there, good to see you. So glad that you're here, we got uh, a full house. It's so great to see a diverse group here today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And love seeing the youth, you know me, I'm a youth guy so I love seeing the youth but I'm so thankful for the older saints. Jim Boyd, so thankful for you for leading that class. This is what God wants in the gathering, is old and young and diverse, coming together with one common denominator, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's so good to see you. Grab your Bibles. John chapter 20. This is the last Sunday in our series going through the Gospel of John. If you're new today, what we did was we singled out eight kinds of people from the Gospel of John who had what we would call belief barriers. Belief barriers. And as Chris prayed, if there's a belong barrier in your life, we'd really like you to belong here. We want to encourage you to follow Jesus. And we exist, as Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples, we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. And during this series, it has been incredible to see God's word moving in people's lives and changing their hearts, changing their lives. From individuals who've walked into the office and just shared their stories about how God has changed them and is continuing to do so. And uh, we have three people that are going to be baptized today at the end of the service. That is fantastic. And we have multiple people who are going to be welcomed into new membership. Yeah, it's okay to clap. It's okay to clap. Give God the credit. We read about belief all through the Gospel of John, all these stories that Jesus did to prove That he was the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, your sins and mine, to redeem us back to God. As a matter of fact, at the end of the verses we're gonna look at today, there's a very specific and explicit statement. I wanna read it to you from John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, he did miracles. Many other miracles, which are not written in this book, verse 31, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, that by believing you may have life in his name. Tons of other incredible things that Jesus did, there's not enough space in the book But the ones that are recorded are recorded so that you and I can believe. We can put our weight and our trust in Jesus as an absolute truth for salvation. Last Sunday, we talked about truth. Jesus, in his interaction with Pilate, we asked the question, what is truth? I want to recap and clarify. The Bible teaches... That truth is that which is consistent with the mind, the will, the character, the glory, and the being of God. Truth is the self-expression of God. Because that is the definition of truth, you and I don't define truth, he does. Because he defines what truth is, truth is theological. You can't get away from the sound theology of the Bible when pursuing truth. You can't go outside of the Bible. But not only is truth theological, it's also ontological, which is just a fancy way of saying truth, the truth of God, corresponds with reality. Reality is what it is because God declares it. He made it so. Therefore, God is the author, the source, the determiner, the governor, the ultimate standard, and the final judgment of truth. You won't find truth outside of God himself, the God of the Bible. So the question today is how can we no truth. What is the biblical meaning of knowledge? How can we know God? In the Bible, to know requires active participation, not just head knowledge, interactive intelligence is how I like to define it. How can we know truth? It's important that we have a biblical understanding of knowledge. Let me illustrate it this way. You get up in the morning. It's your birthday. Your mom and your sister say, get in the car. We're going somewhere. You say, Where are we going? And they don't tell you because they know that intellectual knowledge will ruin where they're taking you. But you need that knowledge. You need to understand where you're going. And so they drive you only a few miles from your house and you pull up in front of a salon. What are we doing? They take you inside, and they sit you in a chair, and before you know it, you're getting a pedicure. Yes, that was Zach on Friday, Heidi and I, our son's birthday, and Sydney and Heidi took him to get a pedicure. Now, those of you who've never had one, you know what it is. You have head knowledge, but until you experience it and lose your man card, you really don't know. Sorry, Zach. Sorry, man. And by the way, just to be honest, Heidi did that to me too, once, (laughs) only once. We could talk about a pedicure, but until you are interacting and and experiencing it, Dean is sitting here going, I don't know what the deal is, I love those. (laughs) I knew you were thinking that, Dean. Where's Dean? He's getting a pedicure. If you don't know who that is, he's sitting right over here, raise your hand, Dean, welcome him. Finally got an amen from Dean. The the chair illustration is most of the time used. You know that a chair is made to hold you, but really until you sit in the chair, that knowledge is worthless. I mean, you know it, but there's an experience of sitting in the chair. It's personal. Knowledge requires active participation. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word yada is the word for knowledge. It's used approximately 950 times in the Old Testament. Its meaning is perceiving, learning, understanding, performing, and experiencing. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words commonly translated for knowledge, oida and ginosko. These words are heavily influenced by yada, the Hebrew word. But it's important to understand that the New Testament emphasizes that knowing God is not simply an intellectual approach or apprehension. John 14 tells us that knowing Christ, not just in your head but in your heart, is knowing God. It's personal. John 17 verse 3 tells us that eternal life is to know the true God in Jesus Christ. There's this knowledge that is not just up in your head, but it's in your heart. Some people have said, or it has been said, that some people will miss knowing God or heaven by only 18 inches. That there are 18 inches between your head and your heart, and to know God They know God in their head, but not in their heart. They have intellectually believed in the gospel, but it has never changed their life, their thoughts, their desires, their intentions. You may know Bible theology. You may know the Bible. You may know God's word. You may be able to understand or explain the Trinity. If you can, help me with it. Or hypostatic union or superlapsarianism. You may be able to define or explain all those things. But unless God has changed your heart, your life, you have missed his purpose for you. It's important to remember that at the end of their life, he's not going to ask you, were you good enough? Did you do enough? Those are important things for a follower of Jesus. By the end of your life, he's going to ask you, was I good enough for you? Was I good enough for you to surrender your life to, to believe in, to trust, to follow personally? See, Paul warns Timothy all throughout scripture to guard knowledge that is reckless he says in 1 Timothy 6, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. He says, Stay away from what is falsely called knowledge, gnosis, truth. We're seeing all throughout our culture today, Christians, pastors, followers of Christ, deconverting because of false knowledge of the truth. And in today's belief barrier, we're going to read about a guy named Thomas. He's one of the disciples, known as Doubting Thomas. You and I have never met Doubting Thomas, but I think you're going to be surprised. We know him. We can relate to them. And so I want to encourage you today as we wrestle with doubt to allow God to speak to you and open your heart and your eyes to whatever he is teaching you from his word. And so we like to uh, publicly read scripture I'm going to invite you to stand. During the series, we've been doing public reading at the end, but today I'm going to set the stage with our sermon and where we're going to land in regards to Doubting Thomas. So just stand for the public reading of Scripture. We believe the Bible is God's authoritative voice. And so as I read it, this is God's word to us. You don't need to turn there. It's going to be on the screen behind. Stay in John chapter 20. But we're going to be reading 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. These are the very words of God in 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, the glory, the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, salvation of your souls. May God be blessed by the reading of his word this morning. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are holy. Your name is above every name, and it is only through your name that men and women, your creation can be saved. May we see, Lord, and believe and surrender to your will today. every day. Your sovereign desire, Lord, will come. You teach us that in your scriptures. It will come to pass in heaven and earth. So, Lord, grant us the ability to know you personally and the saving power of your resurrection. May we truly believe and rejoice in your grace that transforms our minds, the way we think, and our thoughts, and our intentions, but also transforms our actions, our behavior so that we can praise you in everything that we do. This is our prayer this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to put a picture up on the screen. Look at it. Think about what is this a picture of? You can maybe whisper without distracting you to the person next to you, this this picture that's on the screen with all the lines and all the the shapes, what in the world could that be? In his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, Alan Kreider, a renowned church historian, highlights the early Christians' slow, the community, their slow and methodical approach to following Jesus. Slow and methodical approach to discipleship. Complete belonging in the community of faith comes from months and years of learning and discipling and community and growth. Rather than, he says, the attractional approach to evangelism that's very common today, early Christians made discipleship intentionally rigorous. The early followers of Jesus believed becoming a Christian and learning how to live as a Christ follower was too important to rush. It takes all of your life to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and it will take all of your life to help people follow, all of your life to be a disciple, all of your life to make disciples. It's way too important to rush. Transformation into Christ's likeness, sanctification takes time. Time they, he says, were willing to commit to. The picture that you see behind me is created by Satoshi Yamiria. He is widely considered one of the greatest origami sculptors or artists in the world. He's best known for this video that's getting ready to play called Ryujin 3.5, an impossibly intrinsic paper sculpture of a dragon. You'll notice there are over 1,200 scales folded in every single one or from one single paper, hours and hours to complete this sculpting. Actually, you'll see 90 hours to complete. You see, following Jesus oftentimes begins simple. We believe and we receive the gospel story and we learn to obey. Most of us want to do the paper airplane, Christian. A few (laughs) folds and let it go. The 90 hour folding. Doubt creeps in, huh? I go, oh man, oh, this angst can form. The days, the beginning of faith, feel real and light and free, like I said, like a paper airplane. But as life marches on, the crease patterns become more complex questions about the bible begin to pop up about church about our stories and our lives and our experiences and soon enough navying faith for a lot of us we're going to be honest feels nearly impossible and so in frustration we crumble up the paper and stop folding altogether It has been said that the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. You see, cultural influences are always around us. If we're being honest, those cultural things, the things we experience in our lives carry so much weight that if we have not rooted ourselves in the belief and trust of God's word, the Bible will slowly not have authority in our lives and we will shift what the Bible says to fit our experience. We will say we don't like it or it's not fair or we don't understand and I'm here to tell you, I, under, I get that. I feel those things as well. If we're going to be honest, and we should be, we all have questions and doubts. I've wrestled with my faith for years. I've wrestled answering questions that others have in regards to the faith for years. We wrestle together. Maybe you have questions about the Bible as well. Like, how in the world could a worldwide flood happen? God saves one family and two of each animal. Really? Come on. Or the Red Sea parting and the people of a nation walking on dry land to the other side. Or maybe it's real deep, hard stuff. This past week, the question of hell came to me. Hell. The Bible and Jesus talk a lot about this place. Man, if God is a loving God, why is there so much pain in the world mean you don't have to watch much of the news and you realize i just don't see how a loving god is in charge of all this stuff those are real questions and the bible gives real answers you can know and you will not like them but they're there and i'm only telling you you won't like them because i haven't liked them maybe hard for you to believe this but i'm not god about the Bible's teaching on morality, there's so many questions. This Bible is outdated. It does not fit our cultural narrative. It's just plain wrong. I mean, why are Christians so hung up on sex outside of marriage? Or maybe you struggle with doubts on the gospel itself. I mean, think about it. Sometimes we forget as followers of Jesus in church, that some of this really is legitimately hard to understand and a little weird. One guy 2,000 years ago, born to save the world by dying on a cross, brought peace on earth. But all he sees is violence ever since then. And some of you may be saying, well... Andy, I didn't have any doubts till you read that dumb list. (laughs) Welcome to the club now. I know a lot of people who think that they have to, in order to believe, shut their minds off in order to follow Christ. They don't feel that's right. I want to tell you, the giant redwood followers of the faith, the pillars of the faith, Many of the Puritans struggled with doubt. Martin Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, among many others, admitted wrestling with doubt. Today, Jesus is going to teach us from his word how to deal with doubt, and he's going to teach us the difference between doubt and unbelief. So grab your Bibles. That was a long introduction, but we're going to get going here. John chapter 20, starting in verse 22 are 24. The sermon outline is really simple today. We can know. We're going to walk through these few verses. My prayer is that you'll see you can know. You're going to get to know K N O W Thomas. You're going to get to know doubt. You're going to get to know peace. You're going to get to know belief. And ultimately, you have an opportunity to know God. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. Let's get to know Thomas a little bit. This isn't the only portion in scripture where he is mentioned. In John eleven sixteen, 16, it seems to indicate that he is a courageous man. Jesus says, hey, we got to go back to Judea. And everybody's like, wait, no, if we go back, they're going to kill us. It was Thomas that said, let's do this. He had kind of a little Eeyore feel to him. It's like, okay, well, if we're gonna die, let's go. But he kind of had that courage, let's go. In John 14, verse five, it reveals that Thomas was spiritually minded. He was not afraid to ask questions. He wanted to know truth. And we see him asking Jesus very pointed questions in John chapter 14. Thomas is Aramaic, but in the Greek, it's Didymus. And they both mean twin. We do not know who his twin was. But listen, we think about this. I think sometimes you and I feel like his twin. How often are we or do we refuse to believe and insist that God prove himself to us? The truth is, I know Thomas. I think we know Thomas. We have questions, we have doubts. We call him doubting Thomas, but I want you to know Jesus did not rebuke him For his doubts, he rebuked him for his unbelief. We'll see that in a few verses. We should probably call him unbelieving Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called called the twin, was not with them, the disciples, when Jesus came. When Jesus first visited his followers, they were huddled in a secret room. And scriptures tell us, that Thomas was absent. You're not as enthused as I am. Man, I could preach this, but I'm not gonna, because I don't want to make you feel guilty. So I'm just gonna read Warren Wiersbe's comment on this statement in the Bible. Does that sound okay? Here's what Warren Wiersbe said. Thomas is a good warning to all of us not to miss meeting with God's people on the Lord's day. It's not my words, it's Thomas's, or it's Warren Wearsby's. Because Thomas was not there, he missed seeing Jesus Christ, bearing his name, hearing his his words of peace, receiving his commission and gift of his spiritual life. He had to endure, Warren Wearsby says, a week of fear and unbelief. when he could have been experiencing joy and peace. So remember, Warren Wearsby says, Thomas, next time you're tempted to stay home from church, you never know what spiritual blessing you might miss. Thomas was absent. Again, that's Wearsby, not me. But I fully agree. Verse 25, so... The disciples told him he missed it, so they, they, had to, they had to tell him, we have seen the Lord. i pause. Have you ever been so hopeless in life, so frustrated, maybe so angry, so disappointed that even your family or your closest friends, you can't hear, you can't, you just, it's like wah, 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 you know, you just, I've been there. Thomas is devastated. All his hopes and dreams are shattered. He thought Jesus was the one that was going to come and redeem his people to rule the world. And his hopes are shot down when Jesus is crucified on the cross. His closest friends come and say, we've seen him. And he's so hopeless, he can't hear that. And instead... He says to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I think we can relate when we're hopeless, when we're struggling when our world has fallen apart, I think in that minute moment, we know doubt. We know what it is. This portion of scripture is what earned Thomas the nickname doubting. But again, I think it's more accurate to say unbelieving. This word believe in the Greek is pistou, which means, listen, to persuade, to place confidence in. Thomas wanted concrete proof to satisfy his unbelief, to help him overcome his hopelessness. He's saying, I will not allow myself to hope until I'm sure my hope will not be destroyed again. You see, friends, listen, there's a difference between doubt and and unbelief. Thomas wasn't doubting Thomas. He was unbelieving Thomas. And there's a difference between the two. We oftentimes can mix them up. Doubt says, I cannot believe. Doubt is an intellectual problem. We want to believe, but there's faith. We want to believe, but the faith is overwhelmed by problems and questions. And so we doubt. Unbelief is a moral problem. We simply will not believe. Doubt says, I can't believe. I'm struggling. I don't want to struggle through this. Unbelief says, I will not believe unless you give me full evidence, all the evidence I'm asking for. Matter of fact, in the Greek Scriptures, this little section of, or these four, verse, four words, I will not believe, are a double negative. He's saying, I positively will not believe unless I can see and touch. When people don't believe, it is not because of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection or that it's not strong enough. It is because, for whatever reason, They have other motives, they have other questions that make them, in their mind, unable to, unwilling to. It's a head problem. And it's a heart problem. Truth is, is we, in our ways of unbelief, don't want to surrender our understanding and our wills and our desires and so we will not believe. Verse twenty six. Eight days later, his disciples were inside, in were inside again, and Thomas was with them. All the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, "Peace be with you." The doors are locked. The room is closed, and Jesus appears. I heard one person explain this as if you take a close look at the wall and get as close as you can, you're going to see that there's space in the molecules in the wall. And their explanation, by the way, Jim Boyd, their explanation was the person who created the wall outside of time, space, and matter makes total sense scientifically you can walk through the wall. That made sense to me. He appears to them, and he says these words, peace be with you. This word peace, irene. from a biblical perspective, one scholar says, a tranquil state of the soul, assured of its salvation through Christ and by Christ's presence. You see, you and I were created to, No shalom, this Hebrew word, this rich, deep meaning in Hebrew, peace. We're wired for it. Listen to what I'm saying. Peace in the Bible is not the absence of conflict. If that's your definition of peace, and it is, it's the natural definition, it's the worldly definition, if that's your definition of peace, you will never find it. Peace will always be a utopia. Peace from scripture is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God in the midst of conflict. The presence of God. Shalom is the impetus of God. Do you know what that's like? You're wired to know that, what that feels like. God's embrace in the midst, his presence in the midst. He walks through the door, he's there physically, and he says, peace be with you. If you think that peace is the absence of conflict. You will avoid God's presence. You'll rebel. You won't revere. You want to really honor worship and, and go deep with God. It's in the midst of conflict where you experience his presence that will elevate a heart of worship and eliminate all distractions. 2 Thessalonians 6, or 3.16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself be with you in all times in every way. The biblical concept of, pre- of peace does not focus on the absence of trouble. Biblical peace is unrelated to the circumstances. It is, a good, it is a goodness of life that is not touched by what happens on the outside. You may be in the midst of a great trial and it is there that you experience biblical peace. Jesus said on John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. I wonder what the disciples were thinking when he said that. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives. I don't give that kind of peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, the New Testament speaks of two kinds of peace. Objective peace that has to do with your relationship with God and subjective peace that has to do with your experience in life. And the natural man, apart from Christ, will lack the peace of God. At one point, the New York Times observed in an article that peace is a fable. The only peace this world can know is shallow and unfulfilling. Most people's pursuit of peace is only an attempt to get away from the problems. In fact, apart from God, there again is no peace. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of God rule. If you're writing one down, write that down and go read it. Colossians 3:15 Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I love this verse because it teaches us that God loves baseball. All right, I'm sorry. Baseball's mentioned twice in the Bible. The very first book, the very first words, in the beginning. God It's a bad joke. It was a beginning, he created everything in that first thing. And then here in Colossians 3 in this word. Stay with me. I'm sorry. I digress. This word rule in the Greek, braboo, means to act as an umpire. That's what the word means. Look it up. Fact check it. To act as an umpire, to decide or determine. Let the peace of God decide, determine, rule your heart and your life. Paul is urging the Colossian believers here to so depend on the peace of Christ that it becomes the umpire in the decisions they make in life. Are you confident that God is in the decisions and that those decisions honor him? If you don't have peace, it is probably the wrong thing to do. Let Christ's peace be the umpire in your life. The rule book is his word. When I umpired there were, uh, baseball or little league, there was one rule that we all knew. We, we just memorized it, 903C. Now, the book has been amended, so I haven't looked at a current, but 903C. It's the best rule for being an umpire. 903C basically says if there's no explicit rule, the umpire can do whatever he wants. That's my exposition of it. There's no 903C for you in the Bible. God has the rule And we submit to it. Perfect peace comes when our focus is off of our problems. Off of our trouble. And consistently on Christ. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace. Those whose mind is stayed on you. Because they trust in you. They believe they're sitting in the chair. Full weight of their heart and mind. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, so he pops in the room, says, peace, shalom, be with you. And then he looks at Peter. We see Jesus is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. We see that he's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, because there's no conversation There's no explicit tattletaling, you know, Thomas doesn't believe. He just appears to the disciples. He looks at Thomas, and he says to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. In the Lord's own words, he's literally saying, stop becoming faithless. Faithless. but become a believer. You see, Jesus saw the dangerous process at work in Thomas' heart, and he wanted to put a stop to it. Listen to these words about a disbelieving heart from Hebrews chapter three, verses seven through 15. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years therefore i provoked i was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter peace. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as the day is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why belonging to church and relationships and community and family and membership is so important so we don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it said today, if you hear His voice, again, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? It was not all those who left Egypt. Was it not all those who left Egypt by, led by Moses, and with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he answer that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Thomas, stop it. Stop disbelieving. Stop, stop putting your will in front of truth. Belief. Trust. Put all your weight in. Looks right at Thomas. Says, come on, Thomas. believe." Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. When Thomas said these words, my Lord and my God, essentially, listen, he was saying, I don't fully understand. I do And I don't get to call all the shots, but you are Lord and you are God. You are my Lord and you are my God. Thomas' testimony did not come from him touching Jesus, but by him seeing Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. It's important to know in church history, Thomas would go on to die for his faith. Church tradition says that he was speared to death in India for preaching the gospel. Verse 29, after he makes this declaration that Jesus is the Lord, the ruler of his life, and Jesus is in control, he's God. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. If you have your pen, would you underline this? Because this resonates with everyone here who believes. Jesus goes, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Thomas reminds us that we can know God personally even though we don't see Jesus physically. He reminds us that unbelief robs us of the blessing and opportunities that only come from God. Jesus didn't give some Long explanation on why he died. He didn't explain all the ins and outs. The skeptic is the one who says, I will not believe unless. And the truth is that everybody here struggles with that. It's also true that every single one of us live by faith, whether we believe in Jesus or not. The only difference is the object of our faith. Christians put their faith and trust in God in His Word, His proven Word in His Scriptures, that has withstood time and, and attack. And the evidence is just massive when you study. God's word in history and culture and places and people. Christians put their faith in the word while non believers put their faith in themselves or in world systems that fail, that never measure, that never pay. Simply by seeing and believing. See, John invites every single one of us to trust in Jesus and allow Him to transform our lives from death to eternal life. If you've already made that life changing decision, I want to encourage you and invite you to continue to thank God for His precious gift of eternal life by making and continuing to make all the folds that are required in allowing him to transform your life, the origami of your life, so to speak. To wrestle in community with doubts and questions and allow God's word to transform your life. And if you've never made this decision, don't delay. It's not some magical thing that you say or do. you just you confess and you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. You believe that he's Lord. You surrender your life to him. John three thirty six says, he that believes in the son has everlasting life. He does not believe, does not have life, but God's wrath abides on him. If you've never believed, you've never made that decision, and we're here for the sole purpose of helping you follow Jesus, You just let us know we're gonna come alongside you. We're gonna celebrate with you. We have people who are making this decision and God is changing their life in regards to addiction and selfishness and sin and pain and transforming them and giving them peace. We're gonna hear from three people today who've surrendered to Christ as Lord and believe in him. Jesus said, believe and then be baptized as your first act of obedience. And baptism is a public profession, just like a wedding day. Publicly, we're in covenant. Baptism is a public display for everyone to see that this person has surrendered their life to Jesus And they want to be held accountable to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You've heard me say this before. In the first century, baptisms weren't large celebrations. It was like, it was a death wish. Today, it's a celebration because they've died to themselves. They've gone into the water just as Christ went in the ground. They're coming out with new life. This is what baptism is. And so as Chris and Brock introduce and we baptize, I want to encourage you to celebrate and give praise to God for what he's doing in people's lives.